Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles. I'm just going to go open it up to Genesis 13. Genesis 13. That's where we'll sort of get going tonight as we study Genesis 13. Of course, everything that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and Joseph are all found in the book of Genesis, so we're going to all be there. We made the kind of statement last week. On Sunday mornings, we're studying the last book of the Bible, and on Wednesday nights, we're studying the first book of the Bible. So it's sort of, your Bible ought to balance out and open up right to the middle. Okay, so turning your Bibles to Genesis 13, we're continuing seeing the study of the patriarchs. And the book of Genesis gives the lives of four great people. We call them the fathers of the nation of Israel. There's a lot when we look at their lives and we want to make application. We began last week looking at the background of the Old Testament, and we just went over that, how the Old Testament was fit together and that kind of thing. The book of Genesis is in the first five books called the Torah or the Law. And we said that Genesis is divided into two sections, 1 through 11, four great events. Creation, fall, flood, and division. In chapters 12 through 50, Genesis is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph, four great men. And so we've been looking at these men. Our focus in the first five lessons is going to be on Abraham. And he's probably one of the, he's one of the most famous men in the Bible and one of the most famous men in the world. And God actually told Abraham, I'm going to make your name great. And almost anywhere you can go in the world and say Abraham, people know who it is. The three, and I don't, let me just say it this way, I do not consider Christianity a religion, because I think religion is man suing something to get to God. But when people lump them, they say three great religions, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, all have Abraham as the lead of it. And so that's why he is just the greatest in that sense. And so his name means father of many nations. He is the head of the Jewish people. Last time we saw the background, the covenant, uh, the failure in his life. And so this, this, the, tonight we're going to look at three things. We're going to look at Lot. Who, we'll talk about who he is, remember who he is. And Melchizedek, and you say, who in the world is Melchizedek? He's one of the strangest people in the Bible. Uh, and um, he probably wouldn't appreciate us saying that, but the truth is there's just something unique about him when we meet him in the Scripture. And then we're going to see God cuts the covenant. What does that mean? God actually writes out and signs the covenant that God made with Abraham. And we're going to talk about how that works. So we'll get into it. So God has made promises to, to all of us. Think about this. What is the promise to us that he offers to us when we, when we believe? What's his offer? Eternal life, and that's a promise. And the moment you believe in Jesus Christ, the moment you put your faith in him, he gives to you the gift of eternal life. He's also promised us a new body, a place in heaven. We have already seen on Sunday morning this city coming down called New Jerusalem. We think that's the place. He says, I'll never leave you or forsake you. What should you fear? He provides for all our needs. So God can't lie. Uh, that's up whatever promise he makes, he can't lie. And second, he's all-powerful, so he can do whatever he promised. Last time we saw God made a promise to Abraham. And it was an amazing thing. Let me, let me move this over just a little bit. And um, he made a promise to Abraham, and he said, I'm going to make this covenant with you. And it was an unconditional covenant. What does that mean? That means God is going to do it all. Abraham doesn't have to do anything. And he said, I'm going to give you a land, a seed, and a blessing. And the land, of course, is what we call Israel. The seed was a people group, which is the Jews, but ultimate, the ultimate seed is the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And then he said, I'm going to make it a blessing. The whole world, all the world will be blessed through Abraham. And that's because the Messiah, Jesus Christ, is for all people, not just for the Jewish people. So God made this promise to Abraham. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. We're going to see that he says the same thing to Isaac, his son, the same thing to Jacob, his son. So this is a promise that goes all the way through the land, the seed, and the blessing. 
And there are other three other covenants that God made, and all of them tie back in to this. So we saw that a little bit last week, and we'll go over it more maybe in a different way at a different time. But that's, that's what we're looking at. So we're seeing Abraham and God make this promise to Abraham. Now, I want you to think about something. God said to Abraham, I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to give you offspring, and, and the Messiah is going to come through you, and I'm going to make you a blessing to everyone. In fact... Anybody that curses you, I'll curse them. Anybody that blesses you, I'll bless them, and I'll bless the whole nation of the world. And you can see Abraham going, wow, this is fantastic. Abraham is how old when this happens? Do you remember? He's 75 years old. And his wife is 65 years old, and she's still beautiful. And But they're getting to the point where you might could say, are you sure we're going to have any babies? I mean, at 75, 65, what's going on here? But God made this promise to him. So we're going to see uh, these big three things as we look tonight. Abraham going to trust God. We're going to see what happens. We're going to meet some strange things. And So Lot, Melchizedek, and God cuts the covenant. So let's start with Lot. And let's talk, who is Lot? You remember Abraham's dad had three sons. And Abraham, one of the sons, died and he had a son named Lot. And so Abraham basically adopted Lot is what happened. Abraham said, Lot, you come live with me. So Abraham was the, the uncle and Lot was the nephew. And uh, we know that Abraham probably was a lot older than Lot. And he just said, you come live with me. They were in a place called Ur of the Chaldees, which was basically where Babylon is, where Baghdad is today in Iraq. They moved to the northern part and then they came all the way to Israel. And so Abraham and his wife Sarai, and his nephew Lot all came together. Now, don't picture three people that he had. He was already getting wealthy. He already had a lot of people. He had a big group when he traveled. And so he's trusting God because God came to him and said, I want you to go to a land that I'm going to show you, and then I'll give it to you. And we know that he didn't know where he was going. And Abraham trusted God, believed God. And we said the thing last week. Sarah might have said to Abraham, where are we going? And he said, I don't know. And what are we going to do? I don't know. All I know is that God told us to go, and God's going to do something great. And so we're going to see that. So now they're in the land, and what the statement we made last week, which is so amazing, God said this whole land is going to be yours. And yet Abraham lived his whole life and never possessed the land, never did. And neither did Isaac and neither did Jacob. And, and it's not going to be until the Messiah comes that they're going to possess the whole land. But we'll talk more about that. So as we get into this, we're going to see two things. We're going to see the conflict with Lot. That's chapter 13, verses 1 through 13, how Abraham has to trust God. And then we're going to see God's promises again and Abraham's response. And this is the key. So let's remember, Abraham has just failed. Think about that. Abraham has just failed. What did he do wrong? They had, there was a What? A famine, and they said, we better go down to Egypt. We think there's food down to Egypt. We said last week that maybe Abraham probably shouldn't have gone to Egypt, but he did. And when he got down there, what did he tell Sarah? Tell everybody you're my sister. So he lied, and he failed, and Pharaoh found out, and Pharaoh said, what do you think you're doing? Who do you think you are? And this pagan Pharaoh embarrassed so-called the godly Abraham and basically told him, Get out of town. You're gone. 
So Abraham came all the way back, and he came back to Bethel. So look at, look at uh, chapter 13, look at verse 1. So Abraham went up from Egypt to the Negev, that's the southern part, he and his wife and all that belonged to him, and Lot. Now Abraham was very rich in livestock and silver and gold, and he went on his journeys from Negev as far as Bethel, notice, to the place where his tent had been at the beginning between Bethel and Ai, to the place of the altar which he had made there previously, and there Abraham called on the name of the Lord. What did Abraham do when he went back? He, he, he went to the house of Bethel. He called on God. He got back into fellowship. He came back and said, I blew it, Lord. I worship you. I messed up. What do we do when we mess up? We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us. And we get back into fellowship. And he went to an altar. This was where the Abraham had worshipped previously. If you go back to Genesis chapter 12, verse 8, when he first came in the land, he came to Bethel. Anybody know what the name Bethel means? House of God. That's what he called it. He said, this is the house of God, and he worshiped God there. And after the mistake, after the big mess up, he comes all the way back and calls upon the name of the Lord. By the way, calling upon the name of the Lord is never for eternal life salvation. Calling upon the name of the Lord is also for some kind of deliverance or some kind of connection with God. So sometimes you'll hear people say, well, you just need to call upon the name of the Lord and you'll be saved. No, you might be saved from an enemy, but that's not eternal life salvation. So look what happens uh, when, we, when we mess up, we need to do what Abraham did and get back into fellowship with God. So watch what happens, and, and here's the strife coming. The herdsmen have conflict. Notice this, verse 5. Now Lot, who went with Abraham, or Abram, at this stage he's called Abram. I'm calling him Abraham. His name gets changed later. His name's Abram, which means what? High father or big daddy. That's what it means. He has no children. He's going to get his name changed to Abraham, which means father of many nations. He still doesn't have any children. Uh, but, he's try- but that's what God's saying, because I'm going to bring many people through you. Now, Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, and the land could not support both of them while living together, for their possessions are so great, they're not able to remain together. And there was strife between the herdsmen of Abraham's, Abram's stock and the herdsmen's of Lot's stock. And also, there were the Canaanites and the Preservites were in the land. And so, there's a lot of people there, and suddenly, there's this conflict. The herdsmen have this conflict, and there's, there's, there's things going back and forth, and, and and uh, they're fussing, and, and so Abraham says, wait a minute, we can't, we can't have that. So Abraham's got a plan, and we're going to see that what Abraham doesn't offer. Abraham is showing wisdom. Look what he does. He gives Lot a choice. Look at verse 8, and this is amazing. So Abram said to Lot, please let there be no strife between you and me, nor between our herdsmen and your herdsmen, for we're relatives. In the entire, is not the entire land before you? Please separate from me. If you choose to the left, I'll go to the right. If you choose to the right, I'll go to the left. Now, Abraham, or Abram, is, he's, he's showing wisdom and maturity because, listen, he's the older one. And in that whole generation, that whole culture, I mean, the older people are the respected people. And you've got Lot who's kind of saying, you know, these are my people over here and your people are getting to my people. And Abraham could say, suck it up. You know, I'm Abram. I'm the daddy here. I'm the big man. But he didn't. He said, listen, we're relatives and we love each other. We're not going to fuss or fight. We're not going to have this conflict. So here's what. You get the choice. You, you, if you say, I'm going to go that way, I'll go this way. If you say, you're going to go this way, I'll go that way. That's what we're going to do. And, and so look at verse 9. Is not the land before me? Please separate. If you choose to go to the left, I'll go to the right. If you choose the right, I'll go to the left. And so here's the question. Who does the land belong to? Abraham. 
But he's given Lot the choice of the land. And the question could be, is he about to give away the promised land? You know what? The answer is no. Because Abraham, Abram knows God promised it to him. And he's trusting God. He realized this is his land. God's going to take care of him. He'll have the land no matter what Lot does. So he gives the younger man the choice. And look what Lot does. Verse 10. Lot raised his eyes and saw all the vicinity of the Jordan, well watered. This was before God the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, like the garden of the Lord. Listen, Lot looks up, and there's these two cities over here called Sodom and Gomorrah. What do you think of when you think of that? A lot of sin, a lot of badness. But it was well watered. It was beautiful. It was the best place to live. And so Lot said, yeah, yeah, that's some stuff right there, baby. He's going to pick the best one. And Abraham is going to say, or Abraham is going to say, go ahead. You go that way, I'll go this way. And we're going to see that the Lot's choice is, is not such a wise thing. Look, Lot, Lot based his decision on what? On sight. And Abram based his decision on faith. I mean, that's what he does. And, and so look at Lot. Look to Ren. Look at verse 11. So Lot chose for himself all of the vicinity of the Jordan, and Lot journeyed eastward, and so they separated from each other. Wow. So looks, Lot just, he says, I'll, I'll take the good thing. I'll take the good thing. And in and, and verse 13, uh, Abraham settled in the land of Canaan. And verse 13, now watch this. Now the men of Sodom were exceedingly wicked sinners against the Lord. He's moved to a place that's bad. He's moving to a place that was known by everybody that the people living in that area is wicked. But what did he say to himself? It's really nice what? Land. This looks good. I want this. I want to take it. And so Abraham lets him do it. And I I put down there, you know, that Abram chose, his was, uh, Lot chose on the decision on what he saw, and Abram decided on his faith. And listen, it is so easy that the things of the world look so good sometimes, and not always the things of faith, not always the things of Scripture, not always the truth of the Bible, and sometimes the things of the world are more attractive. And I think Lot said, that's some good stuff, I'm going to go get it. But it says... The men of Sodom were extremely wicked. Well, we already know the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, so we could already say to Lot, Lot, don't go, don't go, don't go. That, that won't be a good choice. But he did. And verse 14, so the Lord said to Abram after Lot is separated from him. Now, here's what we know. God always makes promises. God always does what's right. And, and by the way, in this verse, if you notice again in verse 14, it says the Lord said to Abraham, it's all capitals, right? If you notice it, L-O-R-D, that's the personal name of God. So God personally comes to Abraham, personal name, and says to him, watch what he says. Now, raise your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward, for all the land which you see I will give to you and to your descendants forever. What did he just say? You don't have to worry about wherever Lot went. It doesn't doesn't make any difference. This is your land. And so I like to put it this way. Lot chose for self. God chose for Abraham. And this is going to be their land. And if you notice the blank that I have there, it says, to Abraham's descendants, that to Abraham's descendants forever, this is their land. 
I'll go back. Did, you, did I give you time to write that down? Lot chose for self. God chose for Abraham and, or Abram. But to Abraham's descendants, this land. To Abraham's descendants, forever, this is their land. How comforting is that to know that God said, this will always be your land. Now let me just say something to help you understand something. You say, well, but the Jews, I mean, there were times they were taken off into captivity. They didn't live in the land. And, and, and all the way from uh, A.D. 70, basically, uh, all the way up to... 1980, uh, 1948, they didn't live in the land, and so they didn't always have that land. That's right, they didn't. It, it still belonged to them, belonged to God, and belonged to them. But because of, their, because of sin, he removed them from the land. He told them over and over, if you don't do what I asked you to do, I will remove you from the land. It's still your land. I'm going to remove it for you. Abraham's descendants forever, this is their land. All the people arguing today about who, what belongs, Gaza, this, and they, East Bank and West Bank, and all of this mess. Listen, every bit of that land is Israel's land because God gave it to them. And we're going to see what happens later on. Forever is this land. So to Abraham's decisions. Verse 16, notice what it says. It says, I will make your descendants, what, as plentiful how? How much? It's the dust of the earth. So if anyone can count the dust of the earth, then your descendants could be counted. He tells Abraham, or Abram, you got, your descendants are going to be more than the dust. How many is that? Bunches. How many does he have? Absolutely none. And let's just say it in a nice way. There's not a big prospect that something's going to happen there. <laughs> I mean, humanly speaking, let, let's do that. He says, you, you can't even count your offspring. You can't even count your offspring. You can almost see Abraham. So, so you're really telling me that I'm 75 years old and I have no children, but I'm going to have so many offspring that they can't be counted. That's right. And so look what God does in verse 17. Arise, walk about in the land through its length and width, for I will give it to you. So then Abraham moved his tent and came and lived by the oaks of Mamre. We're going to talk about that later. Which are in Hebron. And there he did what? What did he do? Built an altar to the Lord. What do you see him doing every time he's obeying God and doing what God wants him to do? He's worshiping. That's exactly what he does. And so the land, the land belongs to Abram. That's, the land belongs to him. And, and that, that's what he says. And it's a pretty powerful when you look at it uh, that the land belongs to him. And so uh, we see, wow, this is, this is great. Uh, how do we respond? Let me ask you a question. How do you respond... When God does something great for you. Uh, sometimes we say, oh Lord, help me, oh Lord, help me. And then he helps you and you, you, never even, you never say, thank you for helping me. You know, it's just so easy. I remember the joke about the guy driving and he was looking for a parking space. He said, oh Lord, please give me a parking space. Oh Lord, please give me a parking space. Just about that time somebody backed out and he said, don't worry Lord, I found one. You know, <laughs> sometimes we forget what, what God has done for us. And sometimes when he takes us through hard times, when we get through that, we go, oh, thank you, Lord, for taking me through hard times. But guess what? When he's taking us through good times, we should be saying, thank you, Lord. What does Abraham, what does Abraham say? God, no matter what, this is my land. You gave it to me. North, south, east, west, I can walk all the way through it, and I'm worshiping you because of what you've done for me. What did God do for us? He gave us what? Eternal life. He's going to give us a new body. He's going to give us a home in heaven forever and ever, a new city. He, he's, he provides for us every day. He he'll never leave us or forsake us. What should we fear? Do we thank him? Do we wake up every day and go, oh, another day? Or do we wake up every day and say, thank you, Lord. What another day. 
So from failing to being faithful, he trusted God. What do we do? How do we respond? How do we respond in the blessings? See, sometimes when things go wrong, we trust him. We say, oh, Lord, i got to trust you in this. But when things are going good, we sometimes forget that he's the one that brings the good as well. God keeps his promises. Well, we have just seen an amazing thing, that Lot moved away. Where is he? Sodom and Gomorrah. What's going to happen? Do you know what the Bible says? Peter writes and says that his soul was vexed every day because of the wickedness around him. He's a believer. There's not any doubt. In fact, the Bible calls him a believer. And yet he lived among the wickedness of that day, so wicked that God destroyed the whole thing. And so who came out on the better deal there? Abraham, because Abraham trusted God. And basically, and God said, you don't have to worry about it. Uh, it's your land, north, south, east, west. I give it to you. Okay, from there, we're going to meet somebody else. And this is, this is one of the great... So just mark down in your mind Genesis chapter 14 because you're going to meet somebody that is, is all the way through the Bible and yet nobody knows anything about him. I mean, literally, nobody knows anything about this person. And, or at least his background, and we'll talk about it. In Genesis 4, we meet one of the strangest people in the Bible. His name is Melchizedek. Let me put it up there for you. Melchizedek. And he comes to Abram, and we're going to find Abraham, who his name means king of righteousness. We'll come back to it in, in just a little bit. But in Genesis 4, does anybody have a question? I, th I thought somebody said something. Huh? Uh, it means king of righteousness. Okay. But we'll get more. I mean, I'm going to give you more information about him in just a minute. But anyway... Um, um, okay, so Lot goes to live in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it just so happens there are five kings all in that little area. And there are four kings that come in and have a battle. And the four kings are stronger than the five kings. And the four kings come in and they take Sodom and Gomorrah and they take them off. And Lot is captured and taken away. That's, it's, it's, it, Lot was captured and taken away. That's verses 11. So Lot is captured. Uh, let me see if I can. Uh, they've, got the, they've got the names, and I don't want to read them all out, but there's, there's a bunch there. It, it goes on and says now, uh, it says uh, uh, that they came in, the, fi the five kings versus the four kings. Then it talks about the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, and they fell. Those who survived went to the hill country. They took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and their food supply, and they departed. They also took Lot... Abram's nephew and his possessions departed, for he was living in Sodom. That's verses 11 and 12, and I think I have a slide. Yeah, there it is. So they took all the goods of Sodom and Gomorrah. So think about it. Here is, here is Lot in the city, and I bet when that happened, he probably said, I wish I hadn't moved here, right? Look, I, I, you know, they came in, and they said, we're going to kill every one of you, or we're taking your slaves, we're taking all of you, and we're taking you away. And so they all get taken away. They also took Lot, Abraham's nephew, and his possessions and departed, for he was living there. So this is not very good. I mean, you could start off and say, oh, my gracious, this is, this is bad. Well, guess what? Word comes to Abraham. Um, they came back, and somebody came to him and said, listen, see, these five, these five kings came in, or these four kings came in, and they took everybody and beat them all, and your nephew Lot was taken off into, uh, into captivity with them. And so Abraham goes, what are you talking about? We're going to have to do something. So Abram took 318 of his own men. So I want you to understand, he didn't live in my tent by himself. 
He has 318 men that are fighting men that are connected with him. So when Abraham settled down somewhere, a whole bunch of people settled down, okay? They're not Jewish. Not all of them. The only family Abraham has now is Abraham and Sarah and Lot. Who's, the rest of these people, we're not sure where they came from. We just know they're with him. So he's at this place called Oaks of Memory. So he goes to the guy named Memory and says, I need your help. I got 318 men. I need more men because we got to go. We got to go capture these five kings or these four kings. And we bring my, I got to get my lot, my nephew back. And so they all say, let's go fight. They go up there. Abraham with it. They sneak up on him and they attack them all and defeat the four kings. The four kings run off and they save Abraham. Uh, Ab they save Lot. In fact, Abraham rescues Lot. Verses 14, 15, and 16. Uh, it says, when Abraham, when Abram heard that his relative had been taken captive, he led out his trained men born in his household, 318, who went and pursued. They divided their forces at night, and they defeated them. And then notice verse 16, he brought back all the possessions and also brought back his relative Lot with his possessions and also the women and other people. Now, if you were Lot, what would you do after this? I'd move away, wouldn't you? I would move away from this wickedness. Because why do you think God allowed those people to get captured? Could be they're just because they're, they're so wicked. And, and so, he, 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 let's see, I think I have a verse. So he brought back all the goods. He brought back his relative lot with his possessions and also the women and the people. So this is a great battle. Four kings against five, Abraham with his 318 men and Mamre with his, some of his people. And they all go and they win the victory. And they're going to come back. Now let me give you a, a little side note. Because Abram is so smart. When they come back, they're going to meet two different people. We're going to meet the other one in a minute. But the king of Sodom came out to meet Abram. And he said, oh, thank you for saving all of us. And thank you for bringing all this stuff back. And thank you for all this. I tell you what I'd like to do. I'm going to give you a whole bunch of money and a whole bunch of stuff. And you get to keep all the stuff y'all captured. And Abram said, nope, I'm not taking one thing from somebody like you I don't want anybody to think that you made me rich I want people to know that God made me rich he wouldn't touch anything from this guy of the king of Sodom because he's wicked it'd be like somebody saying I want to pay you for helping me you know to bring back all our mobsters and you go no no I don't want your money I don't want your money and Abram now we're going to meet somebody else he meets somebody else and here's this guy who met Abraham his name is Melchizedek. Okay, so I want you to look <clears throat> at, let's go down, um, it, uh, verse 17. Then he returned from the defeat of Kelewendalar, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom, came out to meet him. And now look at verse 18. And Melchizedek, the king of where? Salem, brought out, what did he bring? Bread and wine, and now he was a what? Priest of, what? Wait a minute. This this guy's not a Jew. What's his town? What what city does he live in? That you know what that is? That's Jerusalem, and he's a king and a what? And a priest. He's not Jewish. You mean to tell me at the time of Abram there were Gentiles who believed the same way we believe? Yes. And he was a king and a priest. Yes. And who is this guy? What is his background? Guess what? We'll never know. The Bible never tells us anything about him. He comes out to meet Abram. 
And it says he was the priest of who? God Most High. Who's God Most High? That's the Lord. This man worshipped the true God and had probably never heard of Abraham. Where would he find the message about the Messiah and the true God and the Lord? Where would he find that information? Huh? Well, how about Abraham? How about Adam and Eve? And how about Noah? And how about the people after they spread out? Listen, Abraham wasn't the only person in the world that knew about the truth of the of the of the true God. You know, sometimes we think we're the only ones that know anything. Here comes Abram coming back from a battle, and he is met by a guy who is a king and a priest. And Abraham wasn't a king or a priest. Think about that. And so here's this man, he comes, and let's put it right here. He was the king of righteousness, the king of peace. So you can put down, he was the king of righteousness and the king of peace. Now let me tell you how you get that. Melchizedek, Melech, Melech means king. That, the first part of that word, is that's Hebrew, of course. Melech, it's pronounced like Melech. It has a guttural, and, and Zedek, Melchizedek, Melech is, is Melchizedek. We say it that way. He's the king of righteousness because the word Zedek means righteous. So he's the king of righteousness, and he's the king of peace. How could he be called the king of peace? Salem means what? Peace. It does. Like we get shalom, shalom. Salem is built off the word shalom, which means peace. So here comes this man out of nowhere, and he's a king priest. Where did he find out about the true God? God may appear to him. We don't know. But he's called a priest after the order. We say he's a priest, and his priesthood is after Melchizedek. That's what we're going to say. And we're going to see how that fits together. So look what happens. So let, let me go back for a second. So he comes out to meet Abram and watch what he does. Verse 18 again. And Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out. What did he bring? Does that sound familiar? We'll come back to it in just a second. And he was now the priest of the Most High God. And he said, and he blessed. Who's doing the blessing? Melchizedek's blessing who? Well, I thought Abraham's the most important person in the Bible. I thought Abraham was the main man, but here's somebody, we don't even know who he is, he's a king priest, and he blesses Abraham. And look what he says. Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has handed over your enemies to you. He actually says, I'm going to bless you for a great victory that God has given to you, Abram. And then... Abram does something that is amazing. And he gave a tenth of everything. He gave him a tenth of everything. Abram gave a tenth of all the spoil that they had gotten, and he gives it to Melchizedek. And let, I want to read something to you. You don't have to turn there. But uh, Hebrews chapter 7. Let me just read something to you. And you can write this down if you want to. Hebrews chapter 7 uh, verses 1 and 2, listen to this. The writer of the Hebrews actually tells us a little bit about this man named Melchizedek. In fact, we don't know, any, we don't know anything about him. But in chapter 7 it says, For Melchizedek, king of Salem, was priest to the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was turning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils, by all translations, his name means king of righteousness and king of Salem, which is king, which is king of peace. So 
the writer of Hebrews says, this guy named Melchizedek, he met Abraham coming back from the battle. And he, his name is King of Righteousness, King of Peace. And Abraham gave him a tenth. Well, that's a, that's a big deal. And so who is this man? Well, some people want to say it's Jesus. And, but the Bible says this man was made like the Son of God. It didn't say he was the Son of God. And we're going to find out that he is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. I want you to see this. Here's Melchizedek and here's Jesus. Is Melchizedek a king priest? Yes? Is Jesus a king priest? Yes. Was Melchizedek righteous because he was uh, king of righteousness, wasn't he? Is Jesus righteous? Yes. Was he the king of peace? Is Jesus prince of peace? Where did he live? Salem, where Jesus lived? Jer Jerusalem. Was he not a Levite, right? He wasn't Jewish, was he? Was Jesus a Levite? What tribe was Jesus from? Judah. Tribe of Judah. What did Melchizedek bring? Bread and wine. What did Jesus do that last night? Bread and wine. He's a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. That's who he is. He's a foreshadow of our Messiah, Jesus Christ. So let me give you time to write down those things. And, and by the way, at, uh, on the last page of your handout, okay, there should be something that looks like this. And this is a, a kind of a comparison of Melchizedek and Jesus, a lot more detailed than this right here. So you can look at this. this is, do you all have that? Do you see it? The last page, and that way you can uh, uh, have that as well to go over that. There, there's some great things. So let me give you this right here. Melchizedek is a foreshadow of the Messiah, Jesus Christ. That's who he is. And nobody knows anything about him. And, and nobody ever knows anything about him. And by the way, Jesus Christ had a priesthood. Let me, let me show you something real quickly, okay? Just so you can understand how amazing this is. Here's the tabernacle. Let's say, let's say it's the temple. Does everybody know that, right? And there's an altar out front. And there's a place to wash there. There's, there's the front room, which had bread on this side, a lampstand on this side, and an altar of incense here, and then the Ark of the Covenant. Who, 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 what people got to serve at the temple or the tabernacle? Who served there? Little priests, which were from the tribe of what? Levi. Okay. Jesus Christ is from the tribe of Judah. When Jesus was on the earth, could he have gone in to the tabernacle or the temple and served? He's God. Could he have? Answer is no, because people from the tribe of Judah cannot do that. But what you may not know, and it's found in the book of Hebrews, that in heaven there is an altar. We saw it in the book of Revelation that there was a throne and an altar. And what we found in heaven, there is a holy place. And when Jesus died on the cross and paid for sin, he took his blood. And as a priest, not after the order of, Mel, of, of Levi, but after the order of Melchizedek, he took his blood and poured it out to pay for sin. When the priest went in here and poured out blood, it was to cover sin. So Jesus is a priest after the order of who? Melchizedek. Not after Levi. In fact, the Bible says in the book of Hebrews, if you want to get more information, the book of Hebrews says that if Jesus sought to be a priest on earth, he couldn't be one. This is an earthly priesthood, the tribe of Levi. Jesus is a heavenly priest, and he's of the, of the order of 
Melchizedek. So this guy, whoever he was, is very unique because he has a priesthood. And his priesthood, Jesus, is a priest after that order. And Jesus offers himself as the final sacrifice for sin forever. Psalm 110 says, God says, you are a priest after the order of Melchizedek. So Melchizedek is found in Genesis 14. He's found in Psalm 110. And he's found in the book of Hebrews. And that's the only place you'll ever find him. And we know nothing about him. We don't know who his mother and father are. We don't know when he was born. We don't know what he did. All we know, he was a priest of the Most High God from the city of Jerusalem or Salem, and he came and blessed Abraham. Just most amazing thing when you think about it. So it's wild. Uh, so let me put this up for you. So when you think about Jesus and that, so G Jesus Christ is the King of Kings. Jesus is the great high priest. Jesus is righteous. Jesus does bring peace. Jesus' throne is in Jerusalem. And Psalm 110 declares that Jesus Christ's priesthood is after Melchizedek. So uh, is that anywhere or is that just you have to fill that in? You to fill. So if you want to take a second to do that, but that's, that goes back to, to uh, how it fits together. Let me, let me read something to you which may surprise you. Once again, this is from the book of Hebrews. I think one of the most amazing things, and we talked about it on Sunday morning in the book of Revelation, but I think one of the most amazing things that you could ever realize is that the tabernacle and the temple that the Jewish people built on the earth was patterned after one exactly like it in heaven. So you understand, in the heavenly places, there is a building that looked just like this building, except it was called a heavenly building, and it was made not with hands, but by God himself. And Jesus went in there. And listen to this. This is Hebrews chapter 7, verse 14. He says, It is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah, a tribe with no reference to which Moses said concerning priest. And it is clear still that he is the priest who arises according to the likeness of Melchizedek. So the Bible actually says, that's who he is. He's after the order of Melchizedek. Listen to this. And this, it, that was, I'm sorry, that was Hebrew, uh, Hebrews chapter 7, verses 14 and 15. This is Hebrews chapter 9, and it begins at verse 11. I just want you to listen to this. I know you got, there's not enough room. I think in the future we'll make more room. But listen to this. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, he entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle not made with hands. He entered this one, not this one. This one was not made with hands. This one was made with hands. He entered a greater and more perfect tabernacle not made by hands. That is, not of this creation. This is the earth. And then it says, And not through the blood of goats and calves. He entered through his own blood. He went into the holy place once for all time, having obtained eternal redemption. That's Hebrews chapter 9, verses 11, 12, thir around thir 12 and 13. So I just want you to grasp that Melchizedek came to Abraham, and Abraham was blessed by him, and God comes back and says, Jesus' priesthood couldn't be, couldn't be here because he's, a he's not a Levite, but because he's a priest after the Lord Melchizedek, he came there. 
it is strange stuff. Questions or anything? I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing, amazing truth. Let me see if I can get back to Genesis for a second. Now, so you're Abraham, and you've just had the greatest victory of all. You went with your 318 men plus some other people, and you defeated four kings. You come back. You basically tell king of Sodom, I don't want your stuff. You're met by someone which you've never seen before, and he is a king and a priest of Salem. And this man blesses Abraham, and Abraham gives him a tenth. And then he disappears, and we never see him again. Never hear from him again. He's found in, in Psalm 110, and he's found in the book of Hebrews, but he's never mentioned again anywhere, any place, any time. Nobody knows anything about him. So what's Abraham going to do now? So we're going to see the third part. And, and this is where God cuts the covenant. And this is one of the most beautiful things you'll see in the scripture. But let's think about what happened. Did Abram have to trust God to go and rescue Lot? Yeah, he did. It was big. And now, does he, did Abraham uh, now make some enemies? <laughs> yeah. If you're those kings, what do you think? Wait a minute, who does that guy think he is to come over and take away our stuff? So what does Abraham think? Abraham says, you know, I think I've messed up. But he hadn't. He hadn't. And God is going to come to him and say, you haven't messed up. You don't have to be afraid. If you were Abraham, would you say, what happens if these people come back and get me? Look at chapter 15. Look at verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Now, after what things? After the victory over the enemies and after he met Melchizedek, notice what God says. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision saying, Don't be afraid, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. What did God do? What is the promise there? What is God doing? God said, You don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be afraid. Let me ask you something. Do we have to be afraid? Uh, wish you ever fear about anything? I mean, who's, who's in charge? Who strengthens us? Who is our protector and provider? When we gather together, it's fantastic. We gather together and we worship and we laugh and we love. And then we scatter out all over this community and all over this world. And we're by ourselves a lot of times. Do we have to be afraid? No, because the God of gods, the creator of all things, the one who rules it all says, you don't have to be afraid. What did he say to Abraham? You don't have to be afraid. I am your shield. You don't have to worry about an enemy coming in here and taking away this land. Why? Because it's your land. And so we're going to, to see this. And so the first, uh, we're going to see, first of all, God's promise of the offspring in the land. And then the second thing we're going to see, and you don't, you don't have to write this down. We're going to write down, uh, we're going to see God ratifies the covenant. And I think this will be a good surprise. So here's the first thing. God's promise of the offspring. And so here's what happens. Think about what you would do if God has made the promise. Now, let me ask you a question. What is the promise about the offspring? You're going to have what? What you you going you you're a guy that that's he's over seventy five now right I mean some years have passed and so let's just say let's just make it up that he's about eighty and God says he's already told him you're gonna have you're gonna have a descendant but you're gonna have descendants as like sand of the sea 
of the seashore. There are going to be so many you can't even count them. And you're, let's, let's say he's 80, what would you say to God? Are you sure? <laughs> and so watch what he does. Look at verse 2. Abram said, Lord God, what will you give me? Since I'm childless, I don't have any kids. You promised me this great reward. You promised me everything. What were you going to give me? And then he says, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. What does he mean by that? Listen, he had all these people and all these people serving him and all these people with him. And he had adopted people. And there was a servant in his family named Eleazar, which was like his number one son. This was the main guy that he had hanging around with him all the time. And everybody said, someday Eleazar will be the one to take over for Abraham. And Abraham tells God that. He says, what are you going to give me? I'm childless. I don't have an actual one. And the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. Abraham also said, since you have given me no son... One who has been born in my house is my heir. He says, one of my servants is ultimately going to be the one. And now, by the way, I wanted to put this up here. What did God already tell him? I'm your shield and your protection. And look what God says to him in verse 15, verse 4. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, this man will not be your heir. Listen, this Eleazar guy, this this. Eleazar guy, he is not going to be the descendant and the sand of the seashore and all of that. It's not going to happen. I told you it's going to come from where? From you. Look at the verse. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him saying, This man shall not be your heir, but one who will come from your own body shall be your heir. Now, what could Abraham think about that? I'm too old. I'm too old. When is that going to happen? How can that happen? How can that happen? Let me ask you something. Is anything too impossible for God? I mean, we're going to see it later on. You know, the baby's going to come. Sarah's going to laugh. I mean, yeah, they're all going to say, "Are you sure? This? Are you sure? Have you ever? Have you ever said, do I really have eternal life? I mean, is it for sure? Is it for real? Will He actually take care of me every day?" Um, uh, am I going to have a new home? Uh, am I going to live forever? Sometimes the promises of God are so great that we go, really? I mean, think about it. We just looked on after, uh, Sunday morning at the city coming down. And it's amazing. And, and God is there. And, and uh, we, we looked at a little part. And this next week, we're going to put together the whole eternal state. What's it going to be like? So he says, Eliar, Azar is not your heir, but here's what I want you to do. Look at verse 5. And he took him outside and said, Now, look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Now, look what happened. What did he tell him one other time about his descendants? They'll be like what? Like, like dust. They'll see so many. What does he tell him now? They're going to be like stars. Just go outside. Have you ever tried to count any stars? Have you ever got a place where... Uh, I, I grew up in Meridian, Mississippi, and there's, it's, a, it's a city. You never could hardly see the stars. And when I went to sp spend the summer with my Uncle Shed, his name was Shelton, but they called him Uncle Shed, and I, I stayed with him, and he lived out in the country. And at night, you could walk out. There are no lights. 
you could see billions of stars. And I'd look up and say, gosh, Uncle Sid, I've never seen this many stars in my life. Right? Have you ever got, gone out where there's no lights and you can see the stars? God said, Abram, look up. Yeah? That's how many kids you're going to have. That's what's going to come through you. The descendants will be as the dust. The descendants will be as the stars. And this next verse is uh, amazing. Here's a great truth we found about him. Look at 15.6. And then Abram, then he believed in the Lord, and it was credited to him as righteousness. It says he believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, let me show you something. This, is, this takes place in Genesis chapter 15, verse 6. Okay, had Abraham believed God before? You think he had? When? How about in Genesis 12, when God said, Leave, go to a land that I will show you, that I will give you. Does, did Abraham believe God then? Yes. In Genesis 15, 6, literally, and, and you, in the Hebrew... It could say, uh, well, first count the stars, Abraham had believed God and had been counted for righteousness. Because the Hebrew, the Hebrew present tense also sometimes goes back to being like a past tense idea. So it could say Abraham had believed God and had been credited to him for righteousness. Some people want to say, when did Abraham actually believe? Some say this is the first time it says he believed, and so this is the first time he's actually a believer. I don't think that's accurate. I think he's been a believer since he left the earth of the Chaldees, in which he's worshipped and called on God three or four different times. So I think this is just saying that Abraham had believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. Now let's talk about something that's big. How do you get righteousness? Let's talk about, this is us. Remember, I was an art major. So uh, this is us. And this is fallen man, Right? And we are sinners. And to be with God, you have to be righteous. How do we get God's righteousness? The Bible actually says that when we believe in Jesus Christ for eternal life, God gives us His righteousness. Romans 4, 5, But to him who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited for righteousness. Philippians 3.9 says, Not having a righteousness of my own, but the righteousness of God, which comes by faith. That's what we find. And so God, that's in that little space in there is where you can write this in. So righteousness comes by faith. Do you understand? Let me ask you a question. Are you perfectly righteous? What's the answer? Yes. How, how are you righteous? How are you perfectly righteous? Because God has credited to your account His righteousness. You're perfectly righteous. Now, experientially, you're not. Positionally, you are. And that's, that's the key. One is called justification. The other is called sanctification. Just, you've been justified by faith. You are declared righteous. You have been made righteous in God's sight. It's, it's amazing. Now, with that in mind, let's see the covenant. Let's see God making the covenant. Because Abraham, he's just told Abraham, listen, don't, you don't have to worry about anything. And Abraham says, but I don't have an offspring. How am I going to make it? I don't have an offspring. I got Eleazar. And God says, it's not going to be Eleazar. It's going to come from your own body. And Abraham believes God right then. So let's cut the covenant. Let's see what happens. Now, let me just give you the head start. 
in that day and time, like today, if we were going to make an agreement, you and I would get a piece of paper, and I'd say, I will do this, and you say, oh, you will do this, and then we both sign it, okay? In that day and time, they didn't do it that way. If two people wanted to make an agreement, they took an animal, and they cut the animal in two and made halves. They took arms, and they walked in between the animal together, and they, that's basically signing the covenant. And what they're really saying is, if one of us breaks our word, we're going to be like this animal that got cut in two. That's how they call what they call cut the covenant, okay? And so now God is about to cut the covenant with Abram. Now, think about it. Is God and Abram going to walk hands in hand through this thing? Does Abram have anything to do with the covenant? Who does it all? God, watch what happens. This is so amazing. Um, here's the promise. I will give you the land, verse 7. Look at verse 7. He said to him, I am the Lord God who brought you out of the earth of Chaldees to give you this land to possess it. But he says, but God, how am I going to know? How am I going to know that I'll possess it? So watch what happens. So he said to him, God said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So what he did, he took, he took those three animals and the two birds, and he cut the animals in two. That and two, that and two, and he took the two birds and put them side by side. So what do you have? You have half an animal, half an animal on, on, on the sides. And watch what happens. Then he brought, he brought all this to him. He cut them in two, laid them half opposite each other. He didn't cut the birds, put them side by side. Now when the sun, verse 12, when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abraham and behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. And I'm going to skip down for just a second because we're going to come back to something. And verse 17. And when it came about, when the sun had set, that it was very dark. And behold, a smoking oven was like a flame. And a flaming torch appeared, which passed between the pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. What happened? Abram got, basically Abram, God said, go sit over there. And Abram sat over there and kind of fell asleep. God told him some things. And then what passed between those animals? Like a flaming torch. It was God walking between saying, Abraham, I'm cutting the covenant. All my promises are for sure. I have just written it down, so to speak, for you. Now, let me show you, and we got, don't have a lot of time, so I'm going to go quickly. Uh, when he cut the covenant, 9 through 11, there, there is three things about it. I'm going to give them to you, and you just write them in, okay? Whoops. What happened? Oh, okay, here we go. Uh, the first one is prophecy. Number one, put prophecy, and you can write the whole thing. You don't have to write the whole thing. God tells the future events of Abraham's offspring. Would you like to know what's going to happen to all your people that, that come way after you? Well, Abraham probably wanted to know because God said, I'm going to make a great nation. So they, he tells them they're going to be a captive in a foreign land. You don't have to write all of that down because we're going to come back and get the details in just a minute. So number one, just say, prophecy, God tells the future of, of Abraham's offspring. Then number two, are you ready for number two? Anybody ready? Yep. Most everybody ready? Here's number two. We're going to see the cutting of the covenant, and it's unconditional. You got it? Okay. We actually read it already, so we, we see it. Number three. Here's what we're going to see in number three. The dimensions of the land. Now, in your handout, 
I've got something that you need to look at, okay? When you go to the next page, where you just wrote three, is underneath that the word prophecy? Out beside that, put number one, okay? We, we had to make some changes, so the book didn't get these changes yet. But put out number one by where it says prophecy, because that's the same number one, the prophecy about the people, okay? So here we go. Here's the number one. God tells of the future events of Abraham's offspring. Look what he says about, about what's going to happen there. Um, let me get... The prophecy in Genesis, uh, they're going to be in there in Genesis, it tells that they're going to be in captivity for, that's 12, I think that's supposed to be verses 12 through 16, for 400 years they're going to be slaves. Verse 13, uh, verse 14, God's going to judge the nation. So as you can write where it says there's going to be 400 years, God will judge the, the, the Egypt, that's Egypt, that's chapter 15, verse 14, listen to what it says. Uh, I will judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they'll come out with many possessions. And the third thing is the nation will come out with great possessions. So what we find is God says, your future people will be slaves for 400 years. I will judge the nation that puts them into slavery, and they'll come out rich. What happened? Where did they? What, what nation put them in slavery? Egypt. For how long? 400 years. Uh, did God judge Egypt? He judged the gods of Egypt. That's the ten plagues. Did Israelites come out rich? Do you realize, and we're not going to take the time to do it, but when they came out, they asked every one of their Egyptian neighbors, give me your gold earrings, give me this. And the Egyptians were ready to get rid of them, and they gave them anything they wanted. And they came out rich. By the way, let me ask you a question. What did the Jewish people do with all this gold and silver and riches that they brought out of Egypt? Huh? They built the tabernacle. Yeah? Not the false god. Uh, no, no, not the false god. Not at that point. They actually used all those possessions to build the tabernacle in the middle of the wilderness. Where do you think all the gold came from? Yeah, they were slaves. They didn't have gold till they came out. Okay. Number two, see where it says, oh, it'll be, he says it'll be to the fourth generation. They'll come out with possessions. It'll be the fourth generation. So Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, down to Moses. That's the fourth generation. Here's number two. Number two, there's the cutting of the covenant. It is unconditional. We already saw it. And let me read it to you again. He told him to go lay down, go sit down. A deep sleep fell upon Abraham. He told him all about the things. And then he said, it came about that it was very dark and a smoking oven and a flaming torch pass between the pieces. Whoa, that is amazing. He waited till it was dark so Abraham could see the fire. Let me ask you a question. Um, later on, when the nation of Israel is in slavery and they come out and they go into the wilderness, what does God give them? A pillar of fire. Fire by night and a cloud by the day. And this is unconditional. Why? How do we know it's unconditional? What's Abraham doing? Is he marking between the animals? No, he's over there asleep. Well, God wakes him up. Okay, and then here's the third thing. And the third thing is the dimensions of the land. Now, I want to show you something. This is Israel today. 
and this is, this is Jericho, and this is Jerusalem, and this is the Sea of Galilee, and this is the Dead Sea, and this is Tel Aviv, and this is uh, uh, Mount Carmel, and this is mountain range over here. Here's what's called the Golan Heights. Here's Syria. Here's Saudi Arabia over here. Here's Jordan over here as well. And when we say Israel today, people say, whoa, 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 this belong, this is Gaza Strip, this belong, oh, this doesn't belong, you know. And so when Israel became a nation in 1948, they had a little piece of land that was about this big. And then when it got down to the Sinai, which is worthless, they gave it to all of them, okay? How big will the land be that God promised Israel? Let me show you. It's going to be from the river in Egypt, now to the great river Euphrates. Look at the verses. Look at verse um, 18. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your descendants I have given the land from the river of Egypt as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. What is the river in Egypt? The Nile. What's the Euphrates? Where is the Euphrates River? It's over by Baghdad, okay? Do you realize how big that land is? Let me show you this. Look at this. Okay, wait a minute. Let me get this. This is Israel today. This is the land from the river Nile all the way to the Euphrates River. That's going to be their land. Look at this. That's another way to look at it. Because the river Nile goes all the way down and the Euphrates River is over here. This all could be the land that God's given to them. Poor old Saudi Arabia, they don't get anything, you know, right? That's promised to them. Have they ever possessed all that land? When King David was the king and he ruled the world, did they possess all this land? No. When will they possess all this land? When Jesus Christ comes, we saw it in Revelation 20, when he comes as the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and he set up his kingdom, and he rules from Jerusalem, and he rules the world, that's going to be the land that the nation of Israel gets because that's the promise that God gave to them. Wow. So tonight, what have we seen? We've seen the issue of Lot and how he dealt with with trusted God, and God said, don't worry about it, I'm there. We've seen Melchizedek come, and this whole priesthood aspect, and then we've seen the cutting the covenant. Now, so let me give you some applications, and then we'll have the quiz and to look at it. So let's trust God in the circumstances of life. Well, we have to. Think about it. How did God, what did God do with, I mean, what did Abraham do with Lot? He trusted God. He didn't say, listen, Lot, this is my land, and I'm, I'm hanging on to it. He didn't do that. He said, just pick wherever you want, and I'll go the other way. And God comes to him and says, look, north, south, east, west, it's all yours. Don't worry about it. It's all yours. He trusted God. We're going to have to trust God. And, and sometimes, and what did Abraham do every time? He responded in worship to God. Every time he trusted him. The second one is this. Let's realize that righteousness comes by what? By faith, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. And that's Romans 4, 5. That's Genesis 15, 6. I, I don't know if I have a slide for that. Yeah, Genesis 15, 6, what we just saw. Romans 4, 5. By faith, God gives us his righteousness. Listen, you want to be righteous? People think, and, and I thought that 
growing up, I never went to church. I thought you had to be good to go to heaven. As long as you did more good than bad, you'd be okay. And so I said, well, I'm doing the best I can. I've done a lot more goods than bads. I thought I was righteous. I thought I was good enough. One sin eliminates it all. The righteousness we get comes from God, not from ourselves. The third thing, let's realize Melchizedek is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. That's who he is. He's a picture of Jesus Christ. Now, you're gonna, if you study, you're going to see some people teach that Melchizedek is a pre-incarnate Christ. I don't think so, because the writer of Hebrews says that he was made like the Son of God. He didn't say he was the Son of God. So I think Melchizedek is a foreshadow of Jesus Christ. And then here's number four. Let's understand that God is specific in his promises. God is specific in his promises. What did he said, Abraham, I'm giving you this land. What he tells us, he's given us the what? The word of God and every other promise that is there.